the way in which you think is you start with an assumption or a premise that there are no absolutes and you're saying there is no objective truth and that my story, my experience, you know, is most important. And so we hear this a lot. We hear this, well, you know, your truth is your truth. And of course, that's patently absurd. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast designed to help you grow deep in your faith. Our theme for the year is the good life. Mm-hmm. One of the most important discoveries is that the good life is not an absence of difficult things, but <laughs> becoming the strongest person you can become in order to face anything this life throws at you. So the good life begins by when you the good life begins when you grow strong, move from fear to faith and discover who Jesus is calling you to be. That is why we're here to encourage you, inspire you and give you the knowledge and tools to grow your faith in mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. My name mm-hmm. is Jesse Mayer, and we cannot do the Salty Pastor podcast without our guide, our coach, the Salty Pastor himself, Dr. Douglas mm-hmm. Welcome, Peek. everyone. Glad you're here today. We're going to be kind of uh, putting the cherry on the top of our study of the book of James, which is all focusing us in one particular direction, and that is that we are going to write a spiritual growth plan. I hope that you are thinking about it, that you're considering it, that you're praying about it, that you need a plan over this next year. What is it going to be? It's not just setting a couple of goals like, oh, I want to pray more often. It's not like that. It's how am I going to grow and change spiritually, which impacts every other area of my life, Uh, my mind, my heart, my emotions, my will, my discipline, my character. When you have a spiritual growth plan, What you're doing is you're basically taking an intentional step to say to Jesus, okay, I'm ready, do your thing. Mm. And when that happens, you are going to open up the door to things that you never imagined on how Jesus is going to work in your life. So big on that, glad we're doing it. And we're going to keep talking about this over the course of the year so that you get good reminders that your spiritual growth plan is something you develop between you and Jesus, and it's designed to grow your faith. So we're here at the end of James in yes. chapter five. Um, five power-packed chapters we've gone through in this <laughs> yes, series. They are. And we're going to cap it off with this deep dive, um, I, I mean, into this final chapter. Like, right. what what is the final words that James shares with us, and what is he really trying to drive home? I mean, a lot of times your letters, kind of some of the most impactful moments in a letter, kind of at the beginning and the end, right? Yeah, because. Like, yeah. The middle tends to be a lot of exposition or whatever, but you know, you get to the ending's end. the ending, and yeah. that's what le- you leave with, right? Yeah. That's the thing you remember in movies, the thing you remember in books is how the ending made you feel. So, yeah. what should we be pulling out of what James gave us to end on? Well, the whole book, you know, is based on the principle we need to grow strong in heart and mind to face any challenge in this world. And so that's why we want a spiritual growth plan is we want to develop that kind of strength in our heart and mind. Uh, Now, whenever we set out to do this, there's pushback. And this pushback, I think, comes from various areas. First of all, it comes from Satan in general. I mean, he doesn't like people growing in their faith. He doesn't like that. He doesn't like strength. So he's going to do all kinds of things to stop you or slow you from growing. Everything from tripping you up, putting potholes in there, or 
taking away your ambition, getting you to procrastinate. Kind of getting you to self-sabotage. He's like, yeah. I don't even have to do the hard work if I can just convince you to do the hard work yeah, for me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, just procrastinate, don't do anything, think about it later, you're too busy. Whatever it takes, he's going to do that to slow you down and stop you from growing spiritually. Mm. But I think it's really important to also understand is that because sin is in the world and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have the taint within us. And so there's a part of us within us that pushes back against this. You know, uh, whenever you like start memorizing scripture, you're going to get a lot of emotional pushback from that. Right. And one of the reasons why this is, is because when you start putting scripture into your mind and your heart, there's parts of you that says, yeah, I don't want that in there because it convicts me. I don't like that. I don't want that. In, in some ways, people avoid guilt at all costs, and so they medicate. And so don't memorize scripture because it gives the Lord opportunity to lead and guide you, and they don't want that. Right. So sometimes the pushback comes from within us, and that's why it's so important to have a spiritual growth plan because it overcomes the outside resistance, and it also overcomes the internal resistance to growing in your faith, right? Now, chapter five, he kind of wraps up. He's talked about this. This is the third time that he's mentioned wealth. It's the third time he's talked about prayer. And this is probably the third time that he's talked about patience under suffering, mm -hmm. right? So he talks about it in the first chapter and, and, uh, he's referencing it again here. So the chapter five principles are basically that wealth without Jesus is ultimately futile. Patience is critical. If you're going to work towards something, if you're going to endure through something or persevere through something, and then prayer is what makes the, it possible to persevere. It's where the power to persevere comes from. So we've gotten a good outline of what chapter five has in, entailed. Yes. What, as we're looking towards the practicality, which is what we usually do on Thursdays, practicality, mm -hmm. as we're looking to write our spiritual growth plan, what in the world, whether it's the world itself or Satan, is stopping us from writing an effective spiritual growth plan? Well, I think he starts off here, he talks about wealth, mm -hmm. you know, and he talks about what uh, these people who are not believers were using their wealth to do. And then he, and from, you know, then he takes another big chunk from seven all the way to 12, where he talks about, you need to be patient uh, under the suffering that these wealthy people are imposing on you. So the big chunk of this passage is these people are doing unjust things. God has heard, and now you need to be patient, right? Because it's not going to get resolved right away, but ultimately God's uh, justice is going to play out. So be patient. It will catch up to you. It ca yeah, it's going to catch up to these people. So be patient. Don't take matters into your own hands. So verses 1 all the way through verse 12 is really the biggest chunk of the chapter, right? And so... I think we need to understand is uh, from a practical standpoint, when we're writing a spiritual growth plan for our life is we have to take wealth into account because wealth impacts everything about your life from uh, who you are, how, how you manage your emotions to your goals in life. It impacts all of these things. It impacts your love life. 
You know, it impacts your uh, friendships. It impacts what you do for hobbies and fulfillment. It impacts uh, how generous you can be in in making a difference in people's life. Well, and it affects your worldview of how you interpret the world exactly. is based on where you, I mean, a, a story I learned in college was there's one of my professors talked about how there's been multiple studies and they have found that um, PMS doesn't seem to exist in third world countries. Mm. And it's not that they are sure that it doesn't, but there's no reports of it. And mm-hmm. part of it in their brains is like, well, these people are dealing with such other hardships that these these cramps or these things that are going on yeah, in these women's bodies, they're just like, this is just, this is nothing compared to the other things, which is yeah. like, I need to go get water for my family and stuff. Yeah. So they're they're not saying it does or doesn't exist, but there there's a lack of reporting of this thing. And that's a different worldview than people that are maybe in a first world country where yeah. that is a comfort that they are not used to on a daily basis, right? Yeah, so, and there was a joke in our house, you know, when we would talk about something, you know, you'd walk into a place and the internet's slow or something, we go, oh, that's a first world problem. Yeah. <laughs> the things that we get upset about, right? Right, and, and so it can so really kind of influence yeah. the way you view and interact with the world or what you feel is important. Yeah, right? and I think that has a lot to do with what he's talking about is wealth influences everything. And in this situation... It was wealthy people who were non-believers who were oppressing all of these believers in the church. And what was difficult is that they were Jewish countrymen, right? Mm. So in the same way, there's people in America who have money who are persecuting the innocent. I think a perfect example of this is some extreme uh, progressive leftist ideologies spent, a billionaire spent uh, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to get really radical DAs elected, these DAs then refused to prosecute the law, and now innocent people are being killed. Uh, Women are being raped. The uh, uh, level of violence against Asians in America right now is increased exponentially because these DAs refuse to prosecute the law. And so that is really scary. There was a woman who was murdered in her apartment by a guy who had been arrested in New York City three times that day. And because of their radical bail policies, he was let out immediately. Mm. He'd be arrested. He was let out immediately. And then he ended up following this woman into her apartment and he killed her. And so this is really horrific stuff that's going on. I believe that this is what this passage refers to, is that people are being persecuted by what it says. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. You And so there's real murder going on today, just like then from these, these radical ideologies. And that's really, and, and the point I'm trying to make is that when you write a spiritual growth plan, you have to deal with wealth because it impacts everything. You can't pretend it doesn't. Right. And so you have to deal with it and you don't want to deal with it in the extremes. You know, some people are like, yo, dude, I don't need anything. You know, I just live, you know, and float through this. On the beach, under a tree. you know, and it's nothing else. And wow. And so, yeah, but you create an environmental hazard right there from all of your, you know, sewage, (laughs) sewage and everything else. It it may get, you know, cholera increases because of what you've done. (laughs) So, 
But then on the other hand, if it's, you know, it, you can go the swing the pendulum the other way and, and say basically that I'm, it's just all about me and it's what I can get. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be my first, you know, 10 million billionaire and it's all about me. Don't care about anybody else. So Rules don't apply to me. Yeah. Anymore. So there's all this weird stuff, you know, that can go on in extremes. And so you don't want to do that. And I think the biggest issue that we're facing today in America and the way wealth is being perceived by everybody. And I want to connect some dots here. And the first one is this, is the notion of postmodernism. And this is a very important principle to understand. And that is when you teach people to think in a postmodern construct, it's not the facts or, well, they don't really buy into facts, but it's not the things they're actually thinking, but it's in the way in which they think. So what you're doing is you're saying the way in which you think is you start with an assumption or a premise that there are no absolutes and you're saying there is no objective truth and that my story, my experience, you know, is most important. And so we hear this a lot. We hear this, well, you know, your truth is your truth. And of course that's patently absurd. Okay. Uh, there is a truth and then there's your opinion about it, but there's no such thing as your truth, your reality. It can't, misalign with the reality of the world in which we live because there is objective truth. But if you teach young people, and this is what's happened over the last 35, 40 years to think that way, then what happens, you throw in a touch of deconstructionism and what you get commonly known as entitlement. Hmm. So you have all these people who feel they are entitled and entitled is a nice way of saying envy. It's really saying an envy is that, well, I don't have that and I'm entitled to that. So the primary reason so many people in America have an entitlement issue today is because they've been trained to think in a postmodern fashion in their public educational system. All right. So what exactly is this entitlement attitude or frame of reference that they have? Well, this is what it is. It's the notion that you are entitled to something simply because you're a uh, you're alive. You're a person. Um, it's built on a presupposition. And the presupposition is that, well, human beings have value, therefore they deserve certain things. However, in a postmodernism, your truth is above any other truth. Your story is more important than anybody else's story. So it's okay then for you to say, I'm entitled to this even if it's taking away from somebody else, right? right? So that's basically envy. And it's basically, I have a right to this. And we hear it in the rights language today in America that's so prevalent. For instance, we hear this all the time. Healthcare is a human right. Uh, housing is a human right. Food security is a human right. A living wage is a human right. Well, First and foremost, healthcare is a good thing. Housing is a good thing. Regular food is a good thing. Uh, living wage is a good thing. So no one, I don't think with half a brain disagrees that these are good things, but here's the real issue is nobody ever defines is, well, who do you require to provide those human rights to you? So if, if healthcare is, I'm entitled to healthcare, 
then what I'm entitled to is I can go see a doctor. This doctor, you know, she went to college, she went to high school. She got straight A's in high school. She worked her buns off. She didn't go to out on the weekends. She didn't do any of that kind of, she just worked really, really hard, right? Then she gets a scholarship to a pre-med program somewhere. So she enrolls in that and she's on scholarship. And what does she do? She works really, really hard to get there. And then she's accepted, it's very competitive, to a, a really good medical school, you know, like UW or Harvard or Stanford or something like that. So then she graduates from there. Um, and of course, medical schools, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then she has to go and be a resident, right? Which basically means you get paid minimum wage in the hospital to, and you work 72 hour shifts, you know, kind of a thing. So, but you're learn she's learning all this kind of stuff, right? And then she has a proclivity for surgery or for cardiology or something. So then she has to go do a fellowship, right? So then she goes and does that. So by the time, so she doesn't start practicing medicine until she's like 35 years old. You know, she's been in the system, but then she gets there and it's like, oh, because she has sacrificed for, you know, 14 years of education after she graduated from high school, right? Now what we're going to do is very few people can do what she does. So we're going to pay her a lot of money. Well, the reason why is because her talent and skill, you don't have a right to that. What you do is you have a right to enter into an agreement with her. You can say, I'm gonna compensate you. That's fair, so that you then can help me, okay? That's called a commerce, right? It's a free market relationship. I'm free to enter into it, you're free to enter into it. If I say healthcare is a right, then she has no right to charge. And I can demand that she take care of me without any compensation. So in essence, by demanding that doctors take care of me free of charge, what am I actually doing? And most people never make connect these dots is I am actually saying that we are going to put you in a subclass uh, that's similar to the feudal system, which means you're a slave. You, you don't have any right over all the hard work that you've put in. You have no right over your own decision-making. You have no right over your own individual sovereignty. You're just a selfish individual who wants to make a lot of money. Well, and it comes down to as well, it's because ideally in those systems, someone's paying them, but they're getting all paid the same, right? Like the doctors, I'm assuming the government, like in Canada, I'm assuming the government pays for their, their doctors, right? They're, they're getting paid something, Well, I, but yeah. they're getting paid all basically the same. So she had straight A's, she worked her butt off. She's a specialist. She has all these technology, all this technique. Skills, yeah. But the guy that got C's yeah. and fell asleep in class and yeah. just kind of scraped by is getting paid the exact same amount for his talent, right? Yes, yes. And so it's like you're treating them. There's no desire to increase your work harder and be good at your job and potentially save more lives because it's like, well, whether I'm good or not, I get paid the same way as mm -hmm. long as I'm in this field because that's how our system works yeah. is and everyone's I, entitled to utilize my services no matter what. And then it's like, okay, well, why put the effort in? Well, and I, I think there's some truth to that. Now I'm not an expert on Canadian or Canadians. English or the Great Britain or even American healthcare system. Uh, I don't know what the answers are in there, but I think in a general principle, we obviously understand is that if I look at entitlement, 
the um, approach to life, what I'm really asking is pretty serious. Let's, let's get out of the healthcare. Let's talk about housing. Is housing right? Well, somebody's got to pay to build those houses. And so what, what happens is this is where we get to the next very important part. And that is, is that, well, if I'm entitled, then that's when, and I think you develop the attitude of entitlement within people because that's when you can throw in Marxist ideology. See, cause what you brought up is, is that, well, the government pays for it, but well, well, okay. Let me ask you this question. Does the government have any money? No. No. Where does all the government's money come from? The money tree, obviously, Pastor. <laughs> the money tree in the backyard. <laughs> they just grow it out there. Oh, wait. Or it might be yeah. the, the people that they govern. That yes, pay exactly. The, it comes from the taxation of the people. Now, you might have a group of people. I don't have a problem with this. They get together. They form a collection or a collective or whatever. And then they say, hey, we're all going to throw in this amount and we're going to pay for each other's health care. We're going to do it this way. Or we're going to start a business. I have a problem with that. I Go for it. Um, but what happens is in Marxist ideology, the Frankfurt School of Social Theory, critical race theory, gender studies, everything is a hierarchy that is designed to oppress no matter, no matter what you have to realize there's always a hierarchy. It's like gravity. You know what I'm saying? There's oh, it, hierarchies are structures that exist so that human beings can interact. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago yes. when we were in chapter they, three, I think. Ab hierarchies absolutely exist no matter what. Just like the laws of physics, they exist. You see them in the animal kingdom. You see them in plant life and biology. You see them in human interaction. The thing is, is that in Marxist ideology, what they wanted to do is they wanted to say that all hierarchies are designed to oppress. So even though hierarchies exist, just like gravity, uh, if you interpret the hierarchy to be one of power struggle only and oppression, then you ever have a right, you have every right to tear it down and destroy it. Even though you are oblivious to the implications of what will rise up in its place. On the other hand, if the hierarchy is built upon something else, like for instance, merit, effort, self-discipline, good character, then the people who manifest these qualities more will rise to the top, right? And what's amazing is we see this in all these sub areas. We see it academically, right? People who score the highest can get scholarships. And so what a great thing is that you can live in a very poor part of town. You can uh, apply yourself and you can get a good education. I mean, right now, something that is never talked about in our nation today is that there are people that immigrated here from China, uh, from Vietnam, from Cambodia. These people come over here, they're Asians in their culture. They highly value school. They go to school and then those kids get the scholarships, right? These kids are, some of them were immigrants to America as children, their parents brought them over and they, they excel in that. And now they can get scholarships and become, you know, any kind of white collar professional engineers and doctors and lawyers or teachers, professors or whatever. And so in sports, we have this, right? It's a, it's the people who can perform athletically. It's all merit. You know, we see that we see it in the music industry, right? That is, can somebody create a movie industry? Can you create something that people like and enjoy. These are all merit-based things, right? So 
Uh, what we have to do is we have to realize is that there's always a hierarchy no matter what. And what Marxist ideology does, the Frankfurt School of Social Theory, critical race theory, gender studies, all of these types of things has nothing to do with equality and diversity. It has everything to do with trying to redesign a hierarchy that puts those people in charge. That's what it's designed to do. When you go back and you look at wherever communism and socialism was installed, the first thing it did is it impoverished all the people. It destroyed the economy. That's why the USSR collapsed. That's why Venezuela collapsed. And that's why uh, Cuba is still, you know, an incredibly impoverished country and nation today. And so what it's, that's what happens first. And then the next thing it does is it puts a very small people in control and in power mm. and it dehumanizes people. We don't become more diverse, more inclusive, more prosperous. So the thing is that, is that what James is doing is he is making a prophetic statement. He's saying you people who are rich, you people who have the power you have uh, lived to feed yourself. You know, what's really interesting down in Venezuela today, Madero, you know, I don't know if you've seen pictures of this guy, but in Venezuela right now, Venezuela used to be the top economy in all South America. Right. It was the wealthiest country in South America. And today people are hunting wild dogs in the street and digging through trash. But old Madero there is putting on weight. Mm. And the people that are in charge of the military, what are they doing? They're putting on weight. You see this very small group with all the guns and power, they're, they're doing just fine. And this is the people that James is talking about. You, you have condemned and murdered innocent people, even people who are not opposing you, people who are not even standing up and opposing you and you murdered them anyway. And so he's making a prophetic statement against people like that. And so I think it's really important to understand that our attitudes towards wealth, how we manage wealth, where our wealth comes from has a massive impact, not only on you and your personal strength of faith, but has a massive impact on the society in which you live. And that's important to note. So we only have a few minutes left today, but I do want to get around to what is Christianity and the church's role in kind of changing these things that you're seeing where postmodernism, Marxist mm. ideology is really, uh, propagating this entitlement and and trying to restructure hierarchies and things of that nature what's the church's role and christianity's role in helping you know, kind of what can we do about it right that, now yeah. i think first of all as an individual uh you have a role and that is as a follower of christ you should pursue excellence in all that you do you should become a powerful spiritual warrior in the kingdom of god you should grow in wisdom courage and faith Secondly, you need to live out your values each day in your family and your business and your local community. But third and most importantly, I think this is critical and this is why we're having so many problems today is people have forgotten the upstream principle. You know, where does the seed come from that grows the tree? And that is you need to grow your local church as strong as possible. You know, this is the, the, your local church that's focused on Jesus Christ and his teaching is the seedbed for all of these downstream values that have made America so great. It is the mountain spring that feeds the river that waters the crops. It's the lighthouse in the midst of the storm. And when the church becomes anemic, everything else suffers. 
So the best way to change America and get it back on track is to revive your local church. Get engaged, serve, give, make it a priority. And what can the church um, be doing? Kind of like in general, maybe? Yeah, just in general, just a quick thought or two. Well, I think first the church must be committed to the ministry of discipleship and the ministry of the word. And that is, is that Jesus has to be first. You know, the church always gets off track when it jumps into social justice or it jumps into legalism or it jumps into, you know, uh, all of these different things. You got to keep Jesus first. He is the tremendous compass, the North star, the balancing, you know, keeps you on track. So why do you think, uh, Lenin, Stalin, Pol Pot, Chairman Mao, progressive leftists, scientific materialists, and atheists all hate the church. They hate the church. They outlaw it, persecute it, denigrate it, sue it, hate it, ridicule it at every level. I'll tell you why, because even with all of its imperfections, it holds to an eternal objective truth. And that means there's a standard, there's a law that cannot be manipulated, warped, corrupted, or destroyed. Mm. It is a light that shatters the darkness of evil. And people, the, the darkness that it shatters is people are not pawns. They are not slaves. They are not infinitely malleable that you can change them into whatever you want as a social construct. People cannot be programmed to believe or do anything. They are living souls created in the image of God, which means they are sovereign individuals and they have intrinsic value, not because society gives them value, but because they are creations of God. Our unalienable rights don't come from government. They don't come from philosophy. They don't come from teaching. They come from our creator and we can never lose that. The second goal I think that the church has to focus on is simply this, is that we must send out. We have to resist the temptation to be keepers of the aquarium, a holy huddle, a the Benedictine option option where we just retreat from culture and ignore it. And then we let culture burn to the ground around us. Then we emerge from our monastic bunkers and rebuild. (laughs) And I hate to tell you this, that that worked in Western civilization over the last 1500 years, but today that won't work. Okay. Because the church in China tried to do that. And what they did is they went to those bunkers, those monasteries, they burned them to the ground and murdered everybody. Mm. Pol Pot murdered everybody. Lenin, they murdered all those people. And so the issue here is not that we can go into a bunker and then emerge later. That's not going to happen. So we've got to be able to figure out how to send people out. So I think those are the two most important things the church can do disciple ministry of the word, stay focused on Jesus and then send people out because God is going to call some of you to go out and be uh, a warrior in the political realm. Some of you are going to be called to be warriors as doctors or lawyers or, and you understand the game and you play the game for the benefit of the kingdom of God. That's wonderful. But it's always in partnership with that home base, that local church that is your fountain uh, where you connect to Jesus Christ on a regular basis and you are empowered to walk forth in courage and confidence for the sake of his kingdom. 
So with that, we're wrapping up our Back on Track series this Sunday. You'll be uh, doing your final message on this Mm -hmm. um, for this series. We'll be wrapping up this final chapter in James. But then starting next week, we're going to move on to our new series titled Your Life Matters, um, which is going to be talking about why your life specifically matters in the grand scheme of God's plan and how your ministry, how your testimony can impact so many other people in your lives. And if you're not there doing those things and walking out your faith, then you're denying the world of what matters, what matters, which Mm -hmm. is your life. Your life matters. Y L M. Y L M. Salty pastor (laughs) getting after it. So thank you guys so much for joining us this week. Please join us on Sunday to hear the final message on back on track. And we'll see you next week here on the salty pastor. All right. Blessings.